Hello fellow Lawrenceans, this is Lawrence Talks Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all things philosophy and Lawrence. This is our final pack podcast series of the year, and we believe it to be an appropriate one for the holiday season. In this first part of our two-part series on ethics and homelessness, we explore the ways in which we might think of our ethical duties to each other and to the homeless specifically. Join us as we ask what sort of obligations we have to the homeless community, what we should be doing, and what sort of challenges we face. As always, I'm your host, Dave Tamez. I am joined by my co-hosts, Michael Otterson and Kevin Watson. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode of Lawrence Talks. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Lawrence Talks. I'm your host, David Tamez, and on this show, I am joined by Michael Otteson and Kevin Watson, both who have served as guests before and as co-hosts. And on this episode of Lawrence Talks, we want to discuss the topic of ethics and, and uh, homelessness. And generally, uh, so the questions that we want to address in this podcast are, uh, what sort of obligations, uh, common sense obligations do we have to uh, the homeless? And how does this interact uh, or how might we be informed by traditional uh, ethical theories about what sort of duties we have to, to the homeless. And let's begin there. Before we consider the, how the theories might be applied to this particular situation, uh, how do we make sense of whether we have an obligation to something? without considering the, the specific ethical theories. Because right, we might think we have a common sense obligation to X but, or to, some, uh, to perform some task or to act in a, in a certain way. How do we make sense of that? So, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that we can make sense of what we mean when we're talking about a common sense obligation um, in favor of helping the homeless. But I, I think one of the simplest ways is just to ask or think about whether or not there are certain norms of behavior, certain rules or requirements that we all have uh, in our interactions with one another, um, that when we're talking about certain people within our community, like the homeless population, uh, whether or not we should think of it as one of the ways that we interact with each other uh, is a form of caring or helping them. I think that's really the most basic way of thinking about it. I mean, there are much more complicated ways of thinking about it, but to say that we have an obligation to help others, I think is pretty common sense for most of us. It's one of the things that most of us would agree with. But um, in the case of the homeless population, I think the problem becomes much more compounded in various ways uh, because there's difficulties with how we should be helping, what sorts of things we should be doing to help, um, how effective our help can be. There's a lot of additional questions that we have to ask. Yeah, and, and so, and to say that we have a common sense obligation means that it's it's a sort of, pri- or not primary, but a basic obligation we have. So given that it's basic or the nature or what we mean by basic obligation is, or common sense obligation is that it can be overwritten by other sorts of obligations that we might weigh differently. Um, when, when broadly considering our obligations or responsibilities uh, to others, 
um, we might think about very how various prominent ethical systems and frameworks think about our obligations to other people. And so the three most common, I think, are consequentialism, virtue ethics, and deontology, which is closely associated with the philosopher Immanuel Kant. Uh, I think we have a consequentialist here, so I'll let the I will the utilitarian speak to what utilitarianism is and what it says about our duties to other people. But I myself am a virtue ethicist, and I think a lot about virtue ethics. And so virtue ethics, broadly construed, is the theory that good people have good character traits, or the it's the idea that one's character and one's character traits are the most salient or relevant moral consideration. So when asking questions about what morality is, the virtue ethicist is going to think about it in terms of character traits like courage or generosity, justice, moderation. These are the sorts of things that virtue ethicists care about. Not always what the best outcome in a situation is or what hard and fast rules are, but they like to think about what would a generous person do in a given situation? How would they be generous? And this is a, a case, uh, an issue of case-by-case judgments, mm. where that's the chief virtue for the virtue ethicist is, is good judgment. In the Greek, that would be phronesis, and in Latin, in those prudentia. Um, but the point here is then as a virtue ethicist to, to sort out, okay, do we think it's good for people to be generous? Is that a disposition that we generally want people to have? Do we want people to be just towards other people, fair in their dealings with other people? Is that the kind of quality or character trait that we care about in individuals? So those are the sorts of things. So traditionally, Aristotle and other virtue ethicists have affirmed this. Generosity, justice towards others are very high on the list of virtues for virtue ethicists. However, there are many virtues. And again, it's kind of a case-by-case judgment how those duties interact with each other. And so virtue ethicists might not give really hard and fast rules about whether or not we have obligations to help other people in particular circumstances. Uh, or how when the obligation to be generous, say, is overridden by other obligations. So we might think about, say, an individual who has a child uh, who is an adult and refuses to develop any sort of uh, job skills or career path. We might say continuing to give that person money is no longer generous or it's not part of good parenting anymore. It becomes a kind of enabling at that point. And I, I'm not saying that's the case in homelessness. I'm just saying this is how virtue ethicists try and think about how to understand our obligations to other people generally. And so that's, that's I guess, the broad framework. They're going to want to look at each individual case and, make, and then try and make a judgment. Okay, what's the virtuous or good thing to do in, in any particular circumstance? And in staying with virtue ethicism uh, a, a little bit longer, uh, they also have a, a certain view of the state and the role of the state. 
Uh, can you speak a little bit more to that, gen- generally speaking? Yeah. So this is this is uh, I think a difficulty for virtue ethicists because because it's such a broad mm-hmm. kind of field that I they, they I, I couldn't give you uh, a a. A, an answer to that question that would hold a, for all virtue ethicists. So someone like David Hume is, I think, clearly a virtue ethicist, is considered a virtue ethicist. and But his virtue ethics is really based on kind of uh, desires or emotions, and so, so it's not clear exactly what I think David Hume would have in mind. I mean, for what, what the role of, of the state should be in all of this. Uh, Virtue ethics, ethicists like Aristotle or, uh, say, uh, even Rushd, I think I'm not sure I'm saying that right, uh, known in the uh, or people like Averroes, um, uh, would, would probably say something like the, the, the duty, the goal of the state is to inculcate virtue into its citizens. That's what Aristotle says in the second chapter of book one of, of his big treaty, his big work on ethics, the Nicomachean ethics. He says the goal of the state is essentially to bring about the human good in its citizens. And and, and he and so the, the goal of the state is to produce virtuous people. And so in that sense, in a political sense, uh, for for Aristotelian style virtue ethicists the uh, the state is going to have a an interest, shall we say, in, in imparting certain qualities or character traits into its citizens, and so that is in, in a sense a an obligation we have to other people in in the context of of civic duties and responsibilities. Thank you. In regards to, uh, I can speak a little bit about utilitarianism and the basic approach that it might provide uh, for these situations. Um, <clears throat> when speaking of utilitarianism, we, we can think of it um, having three, three basic components, right? It's a consequentialist theory. So in, it's, in that sense, what it, it's going to be concerned primarily with uh, judging actions based on the sort of consequences that they produce. Um, and often, and traditionally, this has often been uh, formed in the in the principle that uh, an action is right if and only if it produces the greatest amount of happiness, um, and wrong insofar as it does otherwise. I, I think that's the general uh, way that it's put. Throughout the years, that's that's been rephrased in a number of ways, um, but that so. But for the most part, that's. That's the principle that it, it tends to adopt, um, and so, in a sense, so it 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 evaluates our decisions, and and that's another uh, one um, sort of controversy or not controversy, but uh, sort of progression in in its theory that it's it's moved from uh, how we ought to make our decisions to more being a way of evaluating our actions and decisions rather than. Uh, it serving as a way of making decisions. Um, a second component of utilitarianism is that it's impartial. Uh, and for a theory to be impartial means that uh, one way of putting it is that all people matter the same. So no matter who you are uh, or what role you play uh, in, in society, um, you do not matter more 
in virtue of those particular roles or uh, uh, duties or tasks or uh, things you perform within a society. So you could be the president of the United States um, and be compared and compared to someone just off the everyday or the everyday citizen, you do not matter more uh, in virtue of being the president to a utilitarian. Um, now you might, there might be other reasons you might matter more or why we would consider doing something for you over the everyday person. Um, and those considerations are going to be primarily consequential, consequentialist in, in nature. Um, but just on the, on the surface, just looking at your two roles, you do not matter more in virtue of one being president and the other one not. Uh, and finally, uh, utilitarians tend to be, uh, and as I've sort of already mentioned with the principle, uh, welfareist or uh, concerned with well-being. Um, and for the most part, that's often been traditionally understood as pertaining to happiness and, or pain and pleasure. That's the hedonist model. Um, but there are other ways of cashing out well-being. And so the, the idea here, all, all those put together, we want to maximize uh, happiness for the greatest, for the greatest uh, number of people. Um, and again, we're not emphasizing one group of people over others uh, in virtue of, of what they do in life. Uh, only, only to the extent that uh, helping one might lead to better uh, systemic consequences than helping another. Um, so in, in terms of helping the homeless, one, you, you, again, we would say that uh, they matter no less than any other person, uh, everyday person on the street in virtue of, of them being homeless or in the particular situation that they're in. Uh, and so their well-being matters just as much as, as everyone else's. Uh, but the, the extent to which we help them and how much we help them will depend on uh, the, the consequences of, uh, of those decisions. So if by helping the homeless we limit just how much we can help other people um, and helping the homeless might have diminishing returns or very limited returns in terms of uh, good consequences, then uh, we might say that we don't have a, uh, an all things considered or strong duty to help to help the homeless. Uh, but again, all that depends on the way we help them um, and the and the means by which we we help them. Uh, so this might vary in degrees. But generally speaking, we might say all things cons uh, maybe all things being equal, helping the homeless uh, population raise their well-being in some way might be best for everyone. Might, might be best overall. Th that's not clear to me on the okay. utilitarian framework, um, in part because, I, I mean, at least in terms of homelessness in America or in particular communities, a lot of really prominent utilitarians like Peter Singer would say that your charitable dollars or your, your efforts to help other people are most useful when helping people in other parts of the world, right? It's, it's much, in other words, you might say it's a lot more expensive to buy a house, right, for like a habitat for a humanity house in America than it is in Angola or someplace like that. And therefore, we don't have an obligation to help the homeless in America. We have, the, we have 
stronger obligations to to spend our dollars in ways that maximize happiness or utility otherwise. And it might be the case it's just more efficient to buy malaria nets for people who otherwise mm. wouldn't have them than it would be to help homeless people in our own communities. Right, and that's that, and that's more of uh, if we start saying if we. Uh, yeah, I was just trying to give a general statement about, I guess, homeless and not necessarily the homeless in America. So that, yeah, that might be right. So it might depend on the specific uh, consequences or just how much effect our actions might have. And that, yeah, one of, one of the worries that we have to address if we're talking about homelessness in terms of uh, consequential consequentialism or utilitarian uh, moral theories is uh, to look at the actual effects of helping the homeless in particular communities and how effective the use of certain funds is going to be in different areas. So um, in the case of helping people in uh, malaria-ridden um, societies buy mosquito nets, that's going to have a much greater benefit than mm -hmm. um, making sure that somebody um, who has a overall decent life has a place to, to rest their head. Um, if people's children are dying of malaria, that's it's going to be a much greater benefit to those people to have mosquito nets, right? Because the loss that they'll suffer as a result of their child dying from malaria is going to be much greater than the benefit somebody in a pretty well-off community is going to get as a result of um, the shelter giving them a place to stay. But that's not always going to be the case. And there's also certain ways in which we have to think about um, the different types of obligations that we have to different uh, people around us, right? It seems in some ways that uh, we think that local communities are important to us and that we do have certain special obligations to them. Whether or not that's actually the case is unclear. It's something that might be worth discussing. Um, but another thing that we have to think about is in the case of, so if we just are confining ourselves to discussing what sorts of things we should be doing in our local communities, if we're not it, it can't be the job of a local community to, to police the world in every mm. case, right? Um, if, like, we're, so this is a, a podcast that's supposed to be a lot about local issues. So if we're confining ourselves to um, worries that we have about the Lawrence community, right, and what our community should be doing to help a local population that is worse off than a large majority of us, um, it's not only that we should be thinking about it in terms of um, utilitarianism or virtue ethics, but just these sort of basic obligations that we have to one another. I mean, we could think about it in terms of uh, like egalitarianism or contractualism. These are different yeah. theories that tell, are going to tell us different things about the obligations that we have. But it seems obvious that no matter which of these views we accept, right, we do have obligations to the homeless in some ways and that we ought to help them. I, I think getting caught up in the ethical theories themselves yeah. is going to lead us astray in some ways. Um, what's important to think about is, like, these are people that need help, right? How can we help them? What's the best thing that we can do for them that doesn't negatively affect the overall population of Lawrence, right? Um, that's the question I think that we should be asking. We shouldn't be getting bogged down by this. Uh, these weighty discussions. These are important discussions to have. But yeah. look, every single one of these things is going to say that we have an obligation to help homeless people, right, in some way or other. It's just a matter of how, right? how much, 
Yeah. What should the community be doing? How far should the community be going? And how do we weigh um, the losses and benefits that we're going to get from helping the homeless community against the losses to the benefits to the rest of the population? If we're spending a large amount of money on the homeless shelter, it might be the case that that comes at a great detriment to the community of Lawrence. But in some cases, that's going to be what's best for the community because right. um, having the homeless community on the streets is not good for, the, for Lawrence either. It creates a whole lot of other issues. Um, but yeah, so I think, about, I think talking about homelessness and these things in terms of these ethical theories is important and something that we should do. But in a lot of ways, when we're talking about something so close to home, it's important also just to to ignore some of the, yeah, some of yeah. some of these more abstract ideas that we philosophers like to think about, um, and just think more carefully about what it means to, I mean, to care for the people in our community. And I mean, there's another ethical theory that talks in this way too: the yeah, care-based ethics, yeah. right? But Again, all of these theories are saying similar things, um, that we should help the homeless. Um, how they get there is going to be different, and how much or how right. um, extreme, if that's a poor word choice, but uh, how great our obligation is going to be, how, um, how far we have to go is going to be different. And so maybe one way to think about it is just to think about it in terms of each of these theories and say, hey, look, every one of these is going to say that we have at least some obligation. Um, and so what is it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's in part uh, part of how we evaluate theories in general, right, is how well do they match up with the sort of concerns that we have that we think uh, in a common sense way that we that we have, right? We as you mentioned, we think that we have a strong, uh, or maybe a strong uh, common sense obligation to help the homeless, uh, especially depending on how um, sort of uh, bad their situation is and the degree, uh, the, the sort of degree of their of their um, that their, of their of their situation um, poses as as a as a as a bad thing in, in our in our society, um, and yeah, some some of so unfortunately, yeah, something like utilitarianism, given that it's impartial, may not get us to say that we should prioritize, uh, generally speaking, a specific community, but it, it will say that we do have uh, a general obligation to to help the homeless yeah. in some way. It's going it's going to say that we have an obligation to help, depending on the circumstances, mm -hmm. right? Um, but maybe that counts against thinking of the homelessness problem in a local community in terms of consequentialist moral theories um, like utilitarianism. I mean, it seems like in a lot of ways when local governments or the state itself is thinking about homelessness, they're thinking about it in uh, egalitarian terms. Whether or not that's the right way to think about it is hard to know as well, but it seems like that's one of the most plausible ways to think about it. These are, in a lot of cases, the least well-off people in our society, and it seems like in some 
ways we have reason to want them to be better off because why I know because we have an obligation to one another you know we have yeah. certain obligations to one another yeah I actually I, I think even these abstract theories are going to inform what help to, 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 for other people constitutes um, yeah I, I mean again a virtue ethicist for instance I, I can think of not all virtue ethicists, but I can think of virtue ethicists that when, when looking at a problem like homelessness would, would think about teaching people how to be self-sufficient, right? That's a more conservative, hmm. like, take on virtue ethics. But but that's going to be very different from, like, a consequentialist view of what it means to help homeless individuals uh, or, or a Kantian view. We haven't really talked about Kant yet, but maybe... Uh, uh, but yeah, the, the, so so I, I do think these theories are going to matter, uh, you know, in 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 terms of the specifics of of our our particular communities. Yeah, when we're getting into the specific details of how we're helping. Yeah. So none of us, I don't think, identify as a con as Kantians or deontologists, unless. I usually don't, but every <laughs> once in a while, I, I find myself thinking in sort of Kantian terms. Mm. Um, I think the more plausible deontological style uh, moral theory is going to be something like contractualism. Um, but so they're just going to say that where our moral obligations come from some set of rules like uh, that your action is one that nobody can reasonably object, object to. to. Um, and so it seems like depending, yeah, depending on what we're saying about homelessness, both the homeless and the local population might have ways of reasonably rejecting or objecting to um, the policies that are taking place. And so um, it seems like that view may have difficulty in helping us figure out what to do in the case of homelessness. Oh, we can, I mean, uh, uh, you mentioned contractualism, and, and then uh, there, the tra I guess the traditional Kantian view um, has a number of formulations that we could consider to, to bring to bear on this situation. Um, I don't, I mean, we, one, so Kantian ethics has about, seven or eight formulations, I think. Um, one of them is the universal law principle. The Another one is the uh, principle of humanity or formula of humanity. And, the, and the, there's another one. Uh, uh, yes, the formula of the kingdom of ends, which is sort of like the contract, contractualism and, or no, um, think because there's another one there's like a social contract idea there because uh, there's another contractualism then there's one other one um, but yeah so th it, there's there's a number of ways that we could uh, that we can make sense of Kant's ethics so th briefly just to introduce the what the theory uh, is uh, Kant will has uh, what is called so beginning the first one is the formula of uh, the universal law formula and that just basically says we should uh, act in such a way 
uh, that we could wish our motive or our um, what's the, the our motive to be a universal a universal law. So yeah, to act in ways that we can will the maximum of our action into universal law. So the maximum of our action is just the principles um, behind which we are acting, the reason for our action. Um, but I think in the case of homelessness, the 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 more plausible th uh, categorical imperative to think about homelessness in terms of is um, the formula that says that we should treat humanity as an end and never as a mere means. So. Um, when we're thinking about homelessness, we have to think about uh, how our helping the homeless uh, is a way of treating the homeless as ends in themselves and our ignoring their plight uh, or the problems that they're facing might in some cases at least be treating them as a mere means uh, when certain uh, political decisions are being made at least, whether or not uh, not helping is always a case of treating them as a mere means is not going to be obvious. But can yeah. you give an example of what it means to treat someone as a mere means, and then maybe an example of what it means to treat them as an ends? So, if, for example, you um, <clears throat> steal from somebody, you're not treating them as an end. Well, so that's that's not a, a great example. I think a more uh, a simpler example is if you go to uh, the local coffee shop and you treat the barista as if she's just um, nothing more than a teller. Um, she's just essentially equivalent to a cash machine where you exchange money for goods. Um, but you don't respect that she's there working uh, to provide for her family or to um, achieve certain goals. and. Uh, do certain things for herself, right? If you ignore that fact and just treat her as a, a mere uh, m cashier machine, like a, a kiosk, right? Then you're treating her as a, a mere means and not as an end. But if you go up to the barista and you respect her as a person and you know that she's there to, uh, to pay for her child's uh, college or... Uh, to make some money so she can go to uh, her jazz classes that because she wants to be a jazz dancer, uh, then that respects her as a, a human being who has certain ends and values and goals, uh, whereas the earlier way of treating her wouldn't. Right. So in the case of, of homelessness, it might be that when um, the local city council is thinking about the homelessness population, they might be thinking about um, how to use the, the funds in certain ways that achieve their goals rather than respecting the humanity or the ends of the homelessness population and helping them. Uh, difficult to, to think more clearly about at the moment, but there are some cases in which you might want to divert money without considering what harms it might do to the to the local homelessness population. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and briefly, just getting to your your two your two examples there, I had in mind thinking of because uh, we kind of we might see 
one way we this uh, those two people might manifest themselves uh, that we've seen before. Uh, I have in mind someone who's uh, wearing a Bluetooth earpiece and who's on the phone as they're trying to order, and they're just going through the transaction and talking to whoever they are on on the earpiece, but not really acknowledging uh, the person that they're interacting with in the transactional way, on the, uh, namely the barista in this case, and they're just sort of there to be like, yeah, just give me my coffee. And, and so they're not giving any sort of consideration or thought to uh, interacting with that, that person in a meaningful way. I'm just trying to, you know, trying to envision what that, the ways we might have seen these, these people manifest themselves. Yeah, that's, so in that sort of case, it might not be that you're treating them as a mere means. It might just be that you're mm -hmm. treating them as a means. It, I think it takes a little bit more than that, but right. that seems to be getting closer to treating somebody as a means, but yeah. Yeah. And, and um, so that, that, those are just generally in, uh, how these theories might work or these traditional theories of ethics might uh, come to be brought to bear on, on this particular situation. Um, but they may not take into consideration things that we might find important in, in evaluating this, this issue. Um, one thing they don't really uh, find relevant to, their, to the moral evaluation of, of actions is, I guess, the, the causal history or the systemic history of, uh, that may have led to uh, the homeless being where they are. Um, Right, so we might th we might think uh, generally just looking at the situation that the way we have uh, established our legal, political, um, and even private institutions um, may them may itself, or that that the way we've structured this these these things have themselves led to uh, some of the plight that uh, that some people find themselves find themselves in, right? Some of these, the way that some of these institutions are, they favor certain attitudes or ways of believing. Um, and given that they uh, favor certain ways of thinking and doing things, they are going to exclude those who think differently or act other, or act differently or act in uh, ways that divert from that preferred way of doing things. Um, and so if some of these, if, you fall outside of that accepted norm or ways of doing things, then you may not uh, be favored or uh, find yourself in a, in a decent situation in this, uh, depending on the sort of situation or, or community that you're in. So we might say in that sense, and, and we might believe this in a, in a, in a common sense way. Our, our institutions and the people that, uh, that are part of them are there because they're favored in some way. Um, their ways of thinking and doing things. Um, and so those who are homeless might have found themselves that way because they um, don't fit the mold uh, that's generally accepted by, um, by these institutions. Not sure if, Mike, if you wanted to. Yeah, a kind of classic, say, say to, to pick an example of uh, a philosopher or or sociologist who would think in this way would be someone like Karl Marx, where according to Karl Marx, um, capitalistic societies value productivity. They they value capital, money, uh, and thus 
everyone in a capitalist society is expected to be productive in a particular way in order to exist, to earn a wage. You're either a manager who owns the means of production or you're uh, one of the laborers who works within it. And so we might then view, uh, if, if, if we're using this kind of theoretical lens, we might view homelessness as as the result of capitalistic systems that exclude or marginalize people who don't do things that are productive according to the capitalists, the people who are interested in making money. And so if they don't kind of conform to these standards of behavior, then they're ostracized. So this, I mean, you don't have to accept this. I'm just, this is an example of a kind of structural or systemic analysis of homelessness. Uh, you know, Marx had a term for for members of society that that capitalism had no use for. He called them the lumpen proletariat. I don't. I think lumpen. I think that's how you say that. I'm not sure that it is. Maybe French. Um, but uh, yes, he 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 would think about you know individuals that aren't very useful to to the economic system of society as as those that are kind of forced outside uh, of of you know housing and other and 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 employment and all the and all of these other things we, we yeah he he um uh yeah there are other theorists who might who might do something similar like Foucault or something like that who would who would say oh um society wants people to behave in a certain way to be like ordered and and regulated and law abiding because that's a way of imposing control and people who rebel against that or refuse to conform to that uh, are le- are on the outside looking in and and so the the so so those are very kind of abstract frameworks for understanding these things but but, but we might say in in more particular cases maybe uh, some people are homeless or there are a lot of homeless people in a particular area because of perhaps unfair housing practices that that make it so that it's hard for people to purchase housing and that's why they're homeless and it's not a matter of individual choices or failings it's a matter of the power brokers in society making rules regulations laws that cause people to lose lose their homes or or places of residence and i think that that sort of uh can lead into a discussion, I mean, not, not right now, but lead into a discussion about affordable housing, um, because that's one way of addressing uh, these sort of structural imbalances that, uh, that we, you, just, you just mentioned, is that one way we can make up for that is, is prioritizing in our policy, uh, establishing or uh, providing room for affordable housing in, in certain areas of, of our city. Yeah, I think... I think I'm not an expert on on homelessness in America, but my understanding is that, and in, there are an increasing number of homeless people who are not. So, so for since the 70s, there's there's been a, a, a correlation between mental illness and homelessness in America. There's a whole history of the closing of or kicking certain people out of insane asylums, uh, and and why that happened is, is you know something we could get into, but but. 
Thus, it's it's sometimes the case. Not that this is not to say that everyone who is homeless has some sort of mental illness, uh, but this is just to say a contributing factor. Since the '70s, sociologists have often talked about these are these are individuals who are. Uh, whose cases are not severe enough to be in an asylum full time, but nor are they mm-hmm. capable mm-hmm. of supporting themselves uh, within, you know, and holding down steady jobs. And so that they become homeless. Well, recently, my understanding is there's an increasing number of homeless people who are actually employed. It's just that they live in areas where the housing is so expensive that they can't afford to, um, rent or buy a home. And, and so these are individuals, say, that might work at a place like Walmart. Walmart, you know, very famously, oftentimes, uh, you know, homeless individuals can park there in their cars and sleep there. And, and thus, it, it turns out in some cases, the employee is at, say, a Walmart, um, also live in their cars at, in the Walmart parking lot because they can't afford housing anywhere else. So, again, that's just a hypothetical example, but that's that's kind of what we're talking about here. This this is perhaps a new trend in homelessness, and I'm sure we'll learn a bit more about that uh, in, in the upcoming episode. Yeah, I, I think that... Um, so I guess what the, this consideration about the structural imbalances in, in a community or um, trying to raise, or the, I guess the concern that, that this consideration raises is um, by considering these these structural imbalances or these past structural imbalances and, and current, possibly current ones, um, does this sort of, should this cause us to uh, have a stronger obligation or a greater obligation uh, to help the, help the homeless? They seem, they seem to suggest uh, something to that extent. Um, but again, the, the most theories, most ethical theories will, like as Kevin said, will say that we have a, a considerable obligation to, um, to helping the, the homeless community, um, where they might leave us, you know, to to sort of uh, dive into the deep end or you know fly on our own is how just about how do we go about in helping them? What's the most effective way? Yeah, it seems like most plausible uh, moral theories are going to say that we have certain obligations to everyone in our community, right? And the homelessness, in particular, are a group of people who are much less well-off than the rest of us. And so we, in some ways, have a special obligation towards them. We might think, um, or we have certain duties to them that we don't to other people in our community. But um, the details of those obligations are something that we'd have to think carefully about because, as I said, if we're just thinking about it in terms of local population, we have to think about the... um, the various considerations that come with uh, budgetary considerations and, and, and so on. Good, right. So, that, I mean, that's um, one, one way that we often refer to that is uh, trade-off situations. Or, yeah. Um, one thing, before we, I guess before we get to the general topic of trade-off situations, I, I wanted to raise another question, and it sort of came out in, in, in Mike's discussion, is uh, even the, as as questionable as this claim might be, because it it is something that some people might voice time from time, uh, because they don't have a very good understanding of of homelessness and the homeless situation. They might uh, say that why should 
they might ask the question like, why should we help them if some of them are there uh, willingly um, or because of their own sort of uh, uh, personal faults? And so the question I want to raise there is, even if we do accept something like that, does that necessarily entail we don't have an obligation to, to those people? I think it's going to be really difficult to claim or know when somebody is willingly homeless. Um, in a lot of cases, the situation that these individuals are in is the result of a whole host of factors, right? Um, few of which are in their control, some of which are. Um, but look, I mean, if somebody, so I think there is some evidence that there's a large uh, number of the homeless population that are um, Vietnam War vets, right? Mm -hmm. um, these are people who were functioning members of our society, went to war, and experienced traumatic events that resulted in them um, in them being sort of unable in various ways to uh, to engage with society as it was when they got back home, and and so this has led to them becoming outcasts in some ways, and that's not really in their control. The experiences that they had during the Vietnam War, not exactly in their control. Um, and their ability to find jobs and uh, work with um, veteran affairs and things like this, in some ways, is not in their control, right? And so we have this large population of people who we might want to say, in some cases, are willingly homeless. But as a result of a whole host of past actions that they had little or no control of, they are where they are now, and they have found maybe that this is what's working for them. And so we can say like, oh yeah, they're willingly homeless as now, right? But it's not, that's not really the case, is it? Yeah, I mean, so you raise, I mean, I think that raises uh, an initial uh, practical concern, practical concern, and determining whether or not they are there willingly, or even so, even a, a theoretical concern about what does it mean to willingly uh, be homeless, or it, given that those past experiences. So, practically, it's hard to determine uh, whether someone is actually willingly homeless, and theoretically, or conceptually speaking, it's it's difficult to determine because uh, maybe they're not aware of the of the sort of things that maybe led them to want to be homeless or uh, haven't given full consideration of, I guess, that the the, the past uh, or things that have happened in the past that may have caused them to uh, believe that the best sort of situation that they should be in is one where they're, where they're homeless. But it, even if we do identify someone who maybe meets all those sort of, uh, like, even if somebody is, yeah. so we find somebody who we can clearly classify as willingly homeless. Let's just say that that, that has happened, which would be very surprising to me. Yeah. Um, let's just say that that's the case. It still might be true that we should help <laughs> that person. It doesn't seem obvious that right. we should just allow them to continue to be homeless just because they're doing so willingly. It seems like in some ways, at least, um, the willingly homeless person uh, needs help. Um, to understand why they shouldn't want to be homeless, right? With that, we'll uh, end our, our conversation uh, there. Uh, and this is in preparation with our meeting with uh, the those who figure prominently in the, in the homeless situation here in Lawrence. Um, and we hope to have that conversation uh, soon or coming up. Uh, 
Thank you, Kevin, and thank you, Mike, for joining me on this conversation. And so we're here to just not, not make a full determination on, on the situation, but at least introduce some ways of thinking about it and thinking through these issues. Um, with that, thank you for joining us. And uh, you can again, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. Uh, thank you all for listening.